Hello, this is Gerd Leonhardt, futurist and author of Technology versus Humanity. Today, in a conversation with Peter Van, who works with me on content curation here at the Futures Agency, we're going to talk about Chapter 8 of my book, Technology versus Humanity. The chapter is called Precaution versus Proaction. It's a very timely topic. And so, Peter, hello. Hello, good morning, Gerd. Precaution versus proaction. Uh, both words were new for me, so maybe let's do some definitions first. Yeah, I think the precautionary approach is well documented in history. Uh, the Rio Declaration and other declarations that deal with, they basically formulate the precaution as a very simple uh, definition where there are threats of serious or irreversible damage. The lack of full scientific certainty shall not be used as reason for postponing cost-effective measures. Can you give an so, example? Yeah, so um, the different Declaration is actually more applicable to the Rio Declaration, which says that uh, this was 1999. Um, when an activity raises threats of harm to human health or the environment, precautionary measures should be taken even if some cause and effect relationships are not established. So that basically means that um, if we want to change something that's fundamental to humanity, and that is a huge opportunity or a huge threat, then we have to prove that it will not be an ex existential disaster. Uh, and in which context was the wing spread declaration made? Uh, this was in the context of the Large uh, Hadron Collider, uh, oh, the, yeah. idea of, the idea of creating a, a, a black hole mm -hmm. uh, to experiment with uh, fission energy. Mm -hmm. um, and of course, here at CERN in Switzerland, the idea was that once you find out a way of doing this, then you could have a basically endless source of energy. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. But if it went wrong, then yes. Switzerland would be a large crater. Yes. Uh, <laughs> and so uh, this idea of precautionary applies to a lot of things like genetic engineering, artificial intelligence, and so on. Because basically what it says is that we have to think this through all the way to think of the unintended consequences, the externalities, the potential downsides, and the existential risk before we roll out something that has this potential we have to prove that it will not turn into a disaster. Okay. So that's a precautionary approach. And the proactionary principle? The proactionary principle is primarily used uh, these days by transhumanist singularity people and, of course, uh, neo-libertarians <laughs> who are saying that, you know, why should we sit around and prove that something is perfect before we do anything? Uh, we need to be proactive, try out, experiment. And I, I tend to wholeheartedly agree with that. I think we should try a lot of things uh, except for those things that have side effects that we can't control or that may create a precedent that we can't revert on. Uh, and this is particularly true for artificial general intelligence, uh, not so much for uh, AI or intelligent assistance IA. Um, that creates precedent in terms of work or technological unemployment, but it doesn't create existential threat in terms of uh, machines doing things that we can't control anymore. That would be what's called AGI, uh, general intelligence. And so in the chapter, I propose sort of an in-between thinking that we should have precaution when it's about really important things and really existential things. Um, but we should be cautioned, we should, we should be proactive on things that we can improve things with uh, without creating a large precedent that may be irreversible or creating a system that we completely lose control of what we have created. Um, you shared uh, this weekend uh, we are going to have a post 
coming up uh, also this week, uh, a video about uh, a group of 4,500-ish uh, experts, uh, researchers, mm -hmm. that are calling for a worldwide, probably interplanetarian ban on lethal weapons driven by AI. Um, and so they have also a website, uh, it's called www.autonomousweapons.org, mm -hmm. where uh, people can subscribe to this uh, re request. But I think the, vi the video is uh, very enlightening because it shows both sides of the equation why we should be precautionary. And the other interesting question I found, but if we are putting all these measures in place, are we not uh, limiting research or stopping research? Yeah, I mean, I, I think I quote in the book, I quote uh, James Barrett, who wrote a bunch of books about AI, that says, we don't want an AI that meets our short-term goals, for example, creating food supply and so on, and then it also has solutions detrimental in the long term. Right? So, so what we need to do is, is to, uh, going back to the lethal weapons here, is, is we have to delineate the stuff that's quite obvious. Like, uh, I think this is obvious to 99.9% .9 of the population that if we have uh, AI that decides to kill on their own, uh, this could very easily get out of control. Uh, and it might be sort of efficient for the for the military, right? And it may even save lives in the military, but is it human? I think this is the key question. Uh, is it a, a human thing to do? I think, you know, the whole debate about the military is a different debate. You know, I, I'm a pacifist, so I'm not exactly uh, excited about that. But um, if you deem that necessary, that we have to have a military, uh, then I still think it should abide to humanity in, in the larger sense. There are things that we can do that we shouldn't be doing. Mm -hmm. uh, and this is the key question, I think, for all technology. I mean, if you can create a robot that is behaving like, like a partner, uh, is that a good thing to have? Would that be the new normal, like autonomous weapons killing on their own? And is that dehumanizing? I mean, all war is dehumanizing, of course, but in different degrees. And then we have to think about what degree are we willing to accept? And that is the key question. I, I say many times in my speeches, unfortunately, it's not about black or white. I think it's... Why is that unfortunate? Well, it would be so easy if it was, oh. you know, that we okay. can say, okay, we're not going to have a machine that, that can uh, uh, solve a, that can create, that can write a song. Right? We're not going to have a machine that can decide on a melanoma like a doctor. Or we're going to have those hard lines, but the lines aren't that easy because, you know, when you're looking at saying, okay, we're going to save a person that's dying by creating an implant of a sort or using technology to save them or prevent cancer or so, those are good things. We can't just say no, right? but then the same technology can be used by the same people uh, to create aberrations of, of, uh, of human creatures, you know, uh, uh, cyborgs and combinations of man and machine, and even worse, animals and machines as well. We talked about this before when we were talking about the Oppenheimer moment that may be needed to, uh, to start really seriously thinking about uh, these issues. But if we go back to the, the lethal weapons thing, and with your caveat of uh, being a pac pacifist, there is something very strange in that video. At a certain moment, 
uh, there is a, a person saying, yeah, we should, um, it, it will not harm research because we can still use AI for the good things that the military can do, like uh, cleaning up minefields. Well, somebody has put minefields in the first place, <laughs> of, of course. Yes. So it's, it's a very weird uh, conversation. And, and I'm wondering, is this at all possible that we can, we can say this? We want to stop lethal weapons, but I'm afraid it's just going to happen. Well, I think it's, it's going, I mean, many things are just going to happen because now technology can actually do it, you know, using quantum computing, 5G and so on. Uh, and and uh, really what we have to do is we say, well, uh, if it happens, you know, then there is repercussions and there is a part of, you know, falling outside of the international club of people who are adhering to the rules, just like we have with nuclear energy and so on. And that's going, to, that, that's going to be much more of a pressure for everyone. And, you know, for example, if a rogue state does it, uh, there's only really, I don't know, one or so rogue state that we can clearly identify that used to be North Korea, right? If, if that happens there, then they still have to abide to the global regulation about how we're doing things in some way or the other. And so far that has worked for nuclear, surprisingly. It has. Um, and maybe we'll have to do the same thing for the other things like AI. Yes, but we have these, these uh, very nice uh, treaties that have worked for uh, many years, but now there are some uh, characters that are step, starting to step out of all those international treaties. So what, what does this still mean, having a treaty like this to stop lethal weapons? Or? Well, I, I think it's quite clear that if we don't agree on not just treaties, but, but also social, and political, economic contracts, about what we want and what we want to be, uh, then the future it looks, is going to look pretty dim because technology will get so cheap and so powerful that anybody with a million dollars can get themselves such a system. Well, it's not even a million dollars. If you look at the video, it's showing right. these uh, uh, super small drones. But it makes me think of the whole maker movement where people just for a couple of bucks, they can put a basic device in place and basically yeah. any, any developer, basic developer, and it's also mentioned like that in that video, any developer can get the power of a thousand soldiers. Yeah, I think that right now that's in theory true, but there's still lots and lots of little things that make it hard to do. That's probably going to be different in five years. Uh, and I think the only way for us to avoid this total disaster of anybody having those weapons at their disposal, pretty much anybody, even somebody with a personal degree for something, yeah. you know, uh, is to have tight regulation about uh, the, the components that are needed and the technology and the code and all these kind of things. Whether that's realistic or not, I, I don't know, but somehow we have to, at least on the top level, you know, this is not going to be as trivial as it sounds. You can have a drone that drops a, a tiny bomb, but you can't have you know, a thousand drones that drop really radioactive bombs or so, you know, that's, there is a difference in between those two things. And I think these situations will arise, they will arise with drones, they will arise with AI, and, you know, having CRISPR-Cas9 kit for home use, so to speak. Yeah. Right? And, uh, and that's something we really have to get on one page about. And, and I think that's probably going to require some really gnarly incidents to happen first. Yes, and no, who, is, who is going to decide uh, those norms? I mean, I, I remember uh, a, a video, I think it's 
like 10 years ago almost of our um, good friend, Mr. Zuckerberg, saying, well, we just decided it and that's how we decide the social norms. He literally said that. And mm -hmm. so also this week or definitely the week before we have this whole uh, uh, um, situation with Google's AI ethics board that got put together and now suddenly they have to go back to the drawing board because mm. there is, I, I think it's a really good thing that the Google employees have, uh, have raised protests against some individuals that were part of that board that are not aligned with the values that they hold. Right. But, uh, you know, it's, it's an interesting point. I mean, it's actually very close to the precautionary proactive approach, mm -hmm. uh, this whole debate. Because uh, when I look at what Google has done with the ethics board, and I know some of the people on the board that were on the board are <laughs> designated for the board. Mm -hmm. um, first, I would applaud Google for having that thought and, and going out with this. You know, I think that's something we have to recognize. Second, however, I think that uh, an AI ethics board shouldn't be exclusive to Google. Mm -hmm. Uh, because these issues are fought everywhere in the tech industries and, and they're, they're much bigger issues than Google issues. For example, how responsible are you for the side effects of your technology? If the Google uh, Assistant is creating a bunch of uh, people who stop thinking and abdicate their authority, is that Google's fault? Uh, or is it their fault? Or, or, you know, these are much larger issues. You know, I have suggested, as you know, of, of course, the, the Global Digital Ethics Council and I think Google should be one of the entities funding such a council. Mm -hmm. uh, and it should be with wise people. And I don't care whether what their political conviction is, as long as we can agree that they're wise. And, and, and that would not be the case from the guy from the Heritage Foundation, I would say. <laughs> However, I think if Google wants to really do this, then they should start such a council uh, and, and make it open so that it's not just about Google. I mean, if it's just about Google, I don't think they can actually do this because there's too many con converging opinions there. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, and, you know, you're going to have people from the left, from the right, from, you know, from, from the Green Party, from, I don't know, you know, maybe, uh, what's his name, uh, uh, Sanders should be on the, <laughs> on the ethics council. <laughs> <laughs> you know, people like that. But, but I, I think that's a much bigger discussion. Uh, the point I want to go back to for a second was the question about the responsibility of scientists and researchers. Uh, you know, I have this debate a lot when I speak to researchers and scientists uh, on my speaking gigs and also otherwise, of course. Is I think we have to stop with this idea of saying that scientists and researchers get a free hand to invent whatever because in some way or the other it will prove beneficial uh, and they should have a carte blanche of you know, proceeding without caution or without context, because now what we can do with science is truly mind-boggling and transcending the idea of changing a small thing is changing life itself and the planet itself. It has, it has huge potential consequences. Pretty much all of those issues like material science and nanotechnology and, and, and genetic research. And, and now we have to think further and we have to say, what are we responsible for once we take the lid off here? Mm -hmm. So no, uh, no carte blanche for researchers. I, I, think, I think a carte blanche that goes for, say, paradigm changing things or things that can be contained in some way, but existential things. Mm -hmm. 
you know, that, that we have to think about this. Otherwise, we get what Oppenheimer ran into times 500. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, uh, Oppenheimer didn't want the bomb to be thrown uh, on Nagasaki and Hiroshima. He wanted to build it before the Germans did. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right? And he had, he had good parenthesis intention. But his, was used, <clears throat> uh, his, his uh, invention was used by others. And, and that's the same thing that's going to happen now with scientists. I mean, we have to we have to create a context here, and scientists have have always had an ethical uh, debate and component, of course, in their work. But now it's getting bigger because as soon as you invent something, all of a sudden it's like a product, and the tech industry will take it. Yes, and we only have to look as far as the recent uh, Chinese researcher that started uh, playing around with CRISPR on human beings. I mean, brings us to the topic of China. Although we probably can these days start fearing the same thing for from Western uh, uh, com- uh, countries, but many people say, "Well, whatever we say in the Western world, China doesn't care." So they just keep on going. They do this CRISPR thing. I mean, we saw just this week these. I mean, just imagine these videos about uh, students being. Um, uh, surveilled by cameras in the classroom, mm-hmm. and they just think all oh, this is normal. So, yeah, they're setting I, the new normal. Yeah, I think first, I think uh, it's hard to imagine what really works in China and how China really uh, functions when you're not actually inside there and and ingrained in the culture and the context. It's very easy for us from the outside to point mm-hmm. to China and say, "Oh, this is impossible," or "It's terrible," or to make those kind of judgments and. Um, I, I make that judgment myself, so I understand that really well. But but reality is that the context is, is apples and oranges, really. Uh, and and this is really hard for us to understand, is that, that Chinese people, by and large, don't worry about most of those things. Um, and there are certain reasons for this. And I think that from the outside, we can say, well, that's definitely not something that we would want. But let's keep in mind also a second thing. I think that China wants to be a global player. Mm-hmm. Uh, they uh, they want to work with other countries. They have to work with other countries to be a global player. And I'm not that pessimistic on China saying, well, we're just going to dominate AI and genetic engineering and geoengineering by putting billions of dollars behind it and then we don't care about anybody else. That is just not a good strategy for their future. Uh, and they know that. I mean, they had, and this is why the CRISPR-Cas9 case shows that China took action and said, you know, this is not good by international scientific standards. And we have to do something. And they, they uh, I think the guy's under house arrest now, the doctor. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I, I'm not that pessimistic about China basically do all these things in a huge power grab thing. It kind of looks that way sometimes. I... I think this is posturing to a large degree. This is like Russia saying that they're going to lead AI or, you know, all of these things. But in the end, it comes down, you know, in 10 years, we're going to get to a global position on many of these things. And every country will have to play along or they just will not be part of the global landscape of of decision making. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I I think that's... uh, that's a short story on China. You know, I'm, I'm just as worried as many other people are about the apparent sort of intent to dominate. Um, however, as I think Paul Seffo said, we should not ref- uh, confuse a short view, a, a good view with a short distance. Yeah. It's also really interesting when you mention how, in this case, China uh, 
corrected course by house arresting the researcher, for example, or saying, no, this is not good. I mean, these sort of fast reactions, going back to the drawing board, and we saw it with Google's AI console, I, I see it happening more and more and more uh, the last couple of, I, I was going to say months, but it's weeks. It's like every week you see somebody say, oh, we were wrong. Uh, we will course correct. Yeah, well, I think it's, it's part of this realization that nothing exists in the isolated space anymore. Nothing exists in such a way that we can say this is a, it's a national issue. It's not. I mean, pretty much everything that we're inventing these days that is big is an international issue. Uh, and, if, uh, and, and then, like, you know, if you have an AI ethics board at Google, can that be separate from AI ethics or, generally speaking, from digital ethics uh, in, in all of Silicon Valley, all of the U.S. and, and worldwide? It can't. Yeah, so the, to back to, to the, the composition, if, you, if we can use that word, of the Global Digital Ethics Council. So it cannot be one company. Uh, it cannot be one continent like, or, you know, or culture, like it's US-driven. Mm -hmm. uh, it has to be diverse from all aspects so that it is not biased. So where would we start in putting such a digital ethics council together. Yeah, I mean, keeping in the theme of the podcast and the book, you know, proactionary and precautionary, mm -hmm. uh, the mix of the two, yeah, I think it's very important that we say, okay, first, you know, I, I think every, every major tech company platform or let's say above a certain revenue or market importance needs to contribute to a pot mm -hmm. uh, of resources. Uh, where that money goes into a pot and that pot is going to fund the activities of this council. Uh, and the council is uh, a council of people who get paid to do it, get paid well to do it. Because how are you going to do the job, you know, if, uh, if, you, if, if you're not really focusing on it, then you end up being a UN rapporteur that is, yeah. you know, and those are very useful, not putting them down. I'm just saying that, you know, to be a rapporteur, how, I don't know how you would do that if you had to make a choice between making a living and doing a good job, you know. Um, so I think all the companies that are above a certain level need to, need to contribute some money into this pot. And then uh, a global search, I think, would uh, uh, start with looking at certain characteristics of people. You know, are they independent thinkers? Um, are they well-respected? Are they balanced in what they put out? Ha uh, can we call them wise? And, and, and from all over the spectrum and not just scientists, not just former CEOs, not just famous writers and so on. But I think we would agree on some people that are wise. Right? Uh, I mean, in many ways, Bill Gates is wise. Right? Uh, of course, that wouldn't be the right person for the council for obvious reasons. But uh, Maybe it would be, I don't know. But, but no. I think uh, that's an example of everybody would understand that we think that Bill Gates ha has a certain wisdom. Right? Mm -hmm. Um, or Sanders, of course, right, as well, even though you wouldn't agree with his politics necessarily, uh, or Kofi Annan, right, uh, people like that, but, but you know, also people who are not maybe well-known. You know? So this would obviously be quite an undertaking to, uh, to uh, agree on this list, but it, it needs to be something that we, you know, this, this is like, you know, when you, when you watch Star Trek, you have a very similar, going back 20 years ago, you know, you have a council of people who are paid to just think about these really complex things and they have no allegiance to a company or to a certain agenda necessarily. Mm -hmm. 
To bring it also back to our uh, to the chapter that we are discussing, precaution and proaction, we have, I think we, we spend now 80% of our time on the precaution part. Mm-hmm. Um, let's look at the other side, uh, proaction. Many people say, well, you're going to restrict the uh, progress of science and research. And so is that true? Is that not true? Is that the short-sighted? You know, I think... Uh, I usually say on this, it's basically the black or white approach here is flawed. You know, it's, it's, it has to really, sometimes we have to be more proactionary than others. Like, you know, proactionary approach to the, to the idea of, uh, of employment and work is to look at education um, and to take more, uh, more me- measures on that immediately so that we can train uh, and educate people better for for future that's going to be mostly the gig economy <laughs> you know and new jobs and self inventing and and all these things and um when it's about doing something that is transcending sort of the context of humanity i think then proactionary becomes quite dangerous and uh, you know most universities have these boards right that decide on what researchers can or should not be doing and some of that, I think, will do as well uh, to also put this together in general for the future, as we've been discussing. Mm-hmm. So I think the proactionary approach also holds well for us in Europe, because we we tend to have too much caution, uh, and also concerns about uh, history and tradition, which are sometimes not necessarily a bad thing. It's just that they keep us back from freeing ourselves of new perspectives. Uh, and this is something that we have to learn here in Europe. We have sometimes too much caution. Yeah. At the end of the chapter, you go back to uh, Max Moore's original declaration. Mm-hmm. Max Moore as a, a transhumanist. And you say something along the lines, yeah, this was 2005, so now we are 2019. It's completely different now because we have reached the pivot point of exponential technologies. Mm-hmm. Why is that, Gert? Well, you know, Max Moore said in his original declaration, he says, by contrast, the proactionary principle urges all parties to actively take into account all the consequences of activity while apportioning precautionary measures to the real threats that we face. And it's, you know, if you look back 2005, what kind of real threats did we face back then? Because most of the stuff just wasn't possible. I mean, thinking machines, language translation, image recognition, cloud computing, you know, none of that. I mean, this was kind of in the infancy. Uh, and, and now we've reached a takeoff point on this curve where, you know, as I like to say, science fiction becoming science fact. Mm-hmm. And, now, and, and now basically the, the whole, the, the goalposts have moved. If we are too pre, pre uh, if we are too, uh, have too much activity before setting the caution, then we're already way inside and we can't change it anymore. Mm-hmm. And this is really because we're in a different place and the speed has picked up. You know, it's exponential, combinatorial, uh, and also interdependent and converging industries. So, so this has huge ramifications. And, and therefore, the speed is different. You know, we can't afford to, to, to let it run and then say, oops, you know, now we have an AI with an IQ of a million, and it's already networked itself with other AI. <laughs> and so now we don't know what to do. Uh, so, so it's just- how much, I, how much time do we have left? 
I think, you know, if you're looking at the primary driver of all of this will be quantum computing because we need huge machine power to make this happen. And, of course, total connectivity, which is 5G and other sensor networks and things like that. To five get years, all the, Five years away. Yeah, five, seven, ten years, you know. Mm-hmm. So I, this is the five-year time frame. Uh, and I think we are already setting precedent on most of these things, like genetic engineering. You know, there's already a huge industry coming up around longevity mm-hmm. and how we not, and this is not just geoengineer, I mean, not just genome engineering or editing, but it's many other things having to do with this. Much of it is actually quite useful, mm-hmm. like predicting, for example, analytics yeah, and yeah. those kind of things. Right? But, you know, we have to set a, 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 a frame. And I think, you know, uh, um, Tim Cook said it well three months ago at the European Commission that we must decide on what we want to be. Mm-hmm because that will influence how much caution we need. If you decide that we're going to merge with technology, like many people in Silicon Valley are espousing, so we can be superhuman, then, then the caution is much less, you know, clearly, because you know where you're going, which is to become one with the machine. And I think this is ultimately uh, a huge uh, a polarity point that we're going to see in the next 10, 15 years, there'll be those that are looking forward to this convergence to be superhuman and unlimited, you know, transcending humanity, parenthesis. And then there will be those who want to still remain human. And you are clearly on that side, on on the humanistic side. Yeah, you know, I I tend to say that, you know, yes, of course I want to be faster or smarter or or better, but, you know, I think the real asset of us is to be more human, not to be faster or to be be superhuman. Do I want to live longer and healthy? Yes, of course, everybody does, uh, but only to a certain point. And I think this is, the, uh, this is the thing that we have to realize, what we would change, as McLuhan said, you know, everything that we extend, whatever we use for extending ourselves, also amputates other pieces. Mm-hmm. We don't get the progress without losing some of the stuff that we used to do. So this is a good time to wrap up, isn't it? Do you have one more question or...? Yeah, I was going to mention uh, this uh, this lady who who who, who wrote about longe- 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 longevity longevity, and I found her quote uh, really interesting. Like you, the choice we have it's for uh, a health span or a lifespan. So extending health span or extending lifespan. Yeah, that's a that's a true point. But of course, ideally speaking, that would be congruent, you know, so we could do both. Uh, there is, however, a uh, defining factor, as far as I understand it, we can somewhat naturally extend our lifespan to 120 or something like this without uh, exactly doing deep scale genetic germline engineering. Mm-hmm. Uh, but beyond that, it would have to be programming of, of humanity, to which I'm imposed in principle. Uh, that's a different debate for a different uh, chapter. Um, but there again, you know, I always say embrace technology, but don't become it. Uh, and, and that's going to be a job for some pretty wise people to decide what that actually means. Mm-hmm. What, what do we have next week? Well, we've got chapter nine, right? We're heading, we're heading into the debate uh, towards the end of the book, actually. Uh, we're talking about happiness next week. Right? Okay. And that's actually a really powerful concept. And since the book came out, I've been doing a lot more work on this concept of what happiness actually is. And that goes, you know, with what I said earlier, what do, what do we actually want to be? 
Do we want to be uh, powerful machines or happy humans? Mm -hmm. So let's wrap up here. Uh, Thanks very much, Peter. Yes, welcome. Um, For all your listeners out there, all of the millions listening to this podcast. So the book is at techvshuman.com, techvshuman.com, technology versus humanity. Um, many videos you can watch on these topics at Gertube, that's G-E-R-D, my name, gertube.com, which is, of course, a YouTube shortcut. Uh, I'm at futuristgert.com, Twitter, G. Leonhardt, and Peter is Peter Van, like the van. Yes. Right, at Peter Van on Twitter. Mm-hmm. And we're both working with the Futures Agency, my company, on that helps companies and, and governments to get ready for the amazing future. Thanks very much for tuning in. Thanks, Goodbye. Peter. Goodbye, Bye. everybody. Bye. Bye.